Welcome back, listeners. My name is Craig Zerpolo, and this is Why Science, a podcast about behavioral and emotional health research at Virginia Commonwealth University in Richmond, Virginia. This series is produced by Kobe, the College Behavioral and Emotional Health Institute, with assistance from WVCW Student Radio at VCU. For more information, visit kobe.vcu.edu and wvcw.org. This show is supported in part by the National Institute for Alcohol Abuse and Alcoholism. Music for today's episode is provided by Claire Morgan. Pre-order their new record, New Lions and the Not Good Night, from Egg Hunt Records at egghuntrecords.org. Our guest today is Dr. Tricia Smith, a researcher and biology instructor who studies the pharmacology of opioids, endocannabinoids, and other drugs of abuse. My name is Dr. Tricia Hart-Smith, and I am an instructor in the biology department. Uh, Right now, I am currently an instructor, but I've also done my PhD and my postdoctoral work here at VCU at the MCV campus. So for many, many years, I did nothing but research in drugs of abuse, the actual pharmacology in a laboratory with cells and, you know, receptors and things like that. And uh, after my postdoc, I came over here to the biology department to teach for a few years. And I'm absolutely loving that. I teach a lot of the um, upper level molecular science courses. So cellular and molecular biology. I'm the director of the Capstone Laboratories. And um, I created a course called the Biology of Drugs here at VCU. And I absolutely adore teaching that. How did you get interested in studying the pharmacology of drugs of abuse? So that's a really interesting question. And it's, funnily enough, my original interest when I was a kid was reptiles. So I was really into snakes. I was that weird kid that as a middle schooler and high school, I had like large boas and pythons and all kinds of creepy crawlies in my room. And I was just really fascinated with that stuff. And, you know, I know I wanted to go into biology and I thought I wanted to go to medical school. So I went to the University of Florida. And while I was there, I was so into the reptiles that I begged to, you know, take a graduate course in herptology. And I really, really loved it. And I particularly loved like the toxins and the venoms when we got to talk about that. So, you know, further on down the road, I applied to medical school and I don't get in the for the first year, but they offer this program in pharmacology that's a one-year master's. And the idea was you get this master's in one year and boom, you're in medical school, practically guaranteed. So I took that one-year pharmacology master's, and I loved it, like loved it way, way more than my medical school courses that I was taking at the same time. And so I really got into that, and my focus was, you know, drugs from natural sources, so reptile venoms and things like that. And that is really pretty typical. Most drugs come from natural sources. Um, So, for instance, like ACE inhibitors, which are a really huge cardiovascular drug on the market today, and they've been on the market for a long time, were actually originally isolated from snake venom, of all things. So uh, I was studying there, and I loved it so much that I entered the PhD program, and I worked on that for a while. And I was at the Tulane uh, University School of Medicine at the time, and a hurricane hit, so Hurricane Katrina. And I wasn't quite finished with my PhD work, so I was looking for other schools to finish at because, you know, it just, it was becoming too involved to, you know, reset up the laboratory after flooding and all that kind of stuff. So 
you know, uh, one of the schools I interviewed with was here at VCU, and they were doing drugs of abuse. And I just thought that sounded so incredible that I couldn't say no. These were amazing compounds that work in the brain at really tiny doses and have huge effects on, you know, complex behaviors and life choices. And, you know, I just couldn't say no. And that was the end of that. I did my, I finished my PhD here, did my postdoc here, and now I'm in biology. Your research with drugs of abuse is specifically with cell receptors. Sort of tell me about how you've started working with that particular facet of drugs of abuse and kind of what that means. So my original PhD research was working with the cannabinoids. These are compounds that bind to the cannabinoid receptor, and they tend to be structurally similar to THC, which is the active ingredient in marijuana. Uh, They also include the endocannabinoids, which are naturally found in our body. So these are compounds like anandamide and 2-AG. Uh, And they give us a lot of our natural high feelings. They make us feel fantastic. Uh, Ananamide is one of the major endocannabinoids, and the Sanskrit word anan means bliss. So these are very blissful compounds. So I worked with these compounds originally and looking at the cannabinoid receptor. And I was actually looking at a protein that interacted with the cannabinoid receptor. So that's, uh, it's called CRYP1A. It's sort of a mouthful. It's cannabinoid receptor interacting protein 1A. And I was interested in how this protein could modulate the activity of that particular receptor. Because nothing in your cell acts by itself. You know, it's always one thing is physically attached to another, which physically bumps another. And You know, the big thing I say in cell all the time is, you know, form equals function. So the shape of a molecule is the activity of the molecule. Uh, So I was looking into those compounds and I was looking at, you know, how different drugs such as THC and anandamide and um, HU210 activate the receptor and then what happens when CRYP1A is there at the same time. So it was really cool because I learned, you know, that different compounds activate the receptor in different strengths, you know, so some things activate it very, very strongly, um, like these experimental compounds like HU210 and things like that. And some things barely activate the receptor. So a good example of something that doesn't activate the receptor very much is THC. So THC, everybody knows it. It's found in marijuana. It's a very, very popular drug. Um, It only turns on the receptor a tiny, tiny bit. And that is really interesting because there's a lot of synthetic cannabinoids that are out on the market right now that people like to abuse. So you may have heard of um, like synthetic cannabinoids, uh, like JWH compounds. They can be bought in your, you know, at a gas station under the names like Spice and Scooby Snacks and things like that. And so people have this idea that, you know, the cannabinoid receptor is a really fun receptor. And when you turn it on, you get these really great effects. You know, THC turns it on a little bit. So maybe if we have these other compounds, you know, they're going to be really fun and safe too, like THC is. But actually sort of the opposite is true because these compounds really turn on the receptor very strongly. Um So THC probably activates the receptor at about 30%, but some of these illegal compounds can go up to 100% or more, and they're actually not pleasant at all. People do not like the effects of them. You know, they cause paranoia and tachycardia and all kinds of horrible events that lead to emergency room visits and things like that. So it's a fun receptor to study. How does that compare to 
Like if you're talking about heroin versus prescription painkillers that are super concentrated, is mm-hmm. that a similar process where it's it's attacking the same receptor, but it's doing it in a much more efficient way? So that's a really good question. All right. So we're talking about two different classes of compounds when we talk about the cannabinoids and we talk about the opioids. So the cool thing about them is they each have their own family of receptors. So there are cannabinoid receptors and those bind to THC and other similar molecules. And then we have the opioid receptors and those bind to heroin and morphine. Um, So there are two distinct receptors, but they're both this class of receptors called G-protein-coupled receptors. So they're these great big receptors that cross the membrane seven times, and they attach to G-proteins, and they behave somewhat similarly. So during the COBE talk, I talked about receptors desensitizing and receptors internalizing. Both of those receptors will do the same sort of process. So if you're giving people a lot of drugs, those receptors become less sensitive. And eventually we start losing those receptors at the cell surface. And that can be part of the mechanisms behind uh, drug tolerance and eventually drug dependence. So they're very interesting to study because it shows that, you know, drug dependence is not just all in your mind. It's in your cells, too. And you mentioned during your talk that there is some hope for people who are addicted as well, that your brain can bounce back in some ways. Your receptors can rebuild. Can you kind of explain that process? Yes. So... This wasn't directly done through my research, but you can see this in other studies where they've put humans in MRI machines so that while they're addicted to drugs and then, you know, maybe 12 months or 14 months later measured their receptor levels and they find that they do indeed come back. And that's great. Um, So in my talk, I mentioned that cells are always talking to one another and they're always, you know, communicating to figure out, you know, how much energy should they use? What shape should they be? Where should they travel to? What kind of job should they be taking on? And, you know, whether or not they should even choose to live or die. So in that, um, you know, they are changing what they do from moment to moment. So if you take someone off drugs, you know, you'll get that immediate withdrawal state, you know. So for instance, if someone's addicted to opioids and their opioid receptors have gone down, all right, when you take that powerful drug like morphine and heroin away, there's not enough opioid receptors there to hear a signal to the cell from the endorphins that say, hey, it's okay, be good, be happy, you know, relieve pain, be relaxed. They can't hear those sounds. So you get this really profound withdrawal where they feel pain and they feel uncomfortable and, um, you know, they have vomiting and diarrhea. And so during that time, the cell realizes, hey, I don't have enough receptors. And they'll actually generate the signal saying, okay, we need to turn all these genes on and we need to start fixing this problem. And over time, slowly but surely, they will build up those receptors and start to look like the cell originally did. So you've started with cannabinoids and now you work with opioids. Mm -hmm. Um, What drove that shift and um, what kind of work are you doing with opioids? So I started working with the opioids when I started doing my postdoctoral research after I got my PhD. And the opioids are a fascinating class of drugs. Um, They have a lot of relevance to society today. Number one, they're highly, highly prescribed for the use that they're supposed to be used for, which is pain relief. These are extraordinarily powerful analgesics, and there's no limit to the amount of pain relief that they can provide. You can snap your leg, you can snap your spine, you know, you can 
crush open your skull. And we can actually take all that pain away using powerful opioids. And there's no other drug class that can do that for you. Um, on top of that, they have a whole lot of relevance to society because they're highly abused. These are extraordinarily addictive drugs. And here in Virginia, we've got a lot of problems with drug abuse and the opioids. So people are abusing them and people are frequently dying from them. And it's really fascinating because, I mean, this is you know, this is a deep problem that involves not only the street use of the drugs, but overprescription of the drugs and uh, in the doctor's office. And so they're a pretty interesting and relevant drug class to study. We need them to relieve pain and we need to understand them in order to overcome the, um, how we say, the overdose epidemic that we're having right now. Um, In my postdoc work, I worked with the opioids, but I worked with them in the gut, which is kind of surprising. When people think of drugs of abuse, they think of work in the brain. Um, But, you know, the brain is, we we understand a lot about what's going on in the brain, not everything, obviously. But when it comes to the drugs of abuse, most people study them in the central nervous system. Everybody knows about the central nervous system, that's the brain, you know, and the spinal cord. And then they know about the peripheral nervous system. But people often forget that we have another nervous system in our body called the enteric nervous system. And the enteric nervous system is found within the lining of our gut. It starts all the way from our mouth and it goes through, you know, many meters of guts all the way to our anus. And the cool thing about the enteric nervous system is it allows the guts to function completely on their own. Your guts are the only organ where you can take them out of your body and without the central nervous system, they're gonna do their own thing. You can put food in one end and it'll digest it and pass it out the other. It doesn't need the central nervous system. Um, The enteric nervous system contains almost as many neurons as the brain. It contains all the neurotransmitters that are found in the brain. In fact, 80% of the body's serotonin is found in the gut. So there's much more serotonin in the gut than there is in the brain. And then we've got all the other transmitters as well, you know, epinephrine and uh, dopamine and all those sorts of things. So it really interests me how these drugs that we know have such powerful effects in the mind also affect the gut. Because a lot of research in the past few years have shown that your gut actually has a major influence on your mood and how you function. So there's been work showing that there's some sort of issues with the gut in things like ADD, autism, depression, um, various disorders like that. You know, they, they seem to have a gut component as well. So to really understand these these drugs in the gut is really fascinating to me because if we have addicts who feel very poorly, you know, yes, we can try to work on why their brain feels so bad, but we might be missing a lot of the problem if we don't pay attention to the gut as well. Um, The opioids have very, very powerful effects in the gut. What I did as a postdoc is I did electrophysiological studies with these neurons. So the first thing that I needed to do is I needed to get a hold of these neurons. So in order to do electrophysiology, which is studying the electrical properties of neurons, which is really, really cool stuff, you have to, you have to get them out of the body and you have to get them onto cover slips so that you can put them under a microscope and you can attach electrodes to them. 
Now, if you're doing this from the brain, this is pretty simple. Okay, the brain is fairly sterile. You just open up the brain, you take out those neurons, you grow them on a cover slip, and you're ready to go after a day or two. No problem. Uh, my issue was I wanted to get these enteric neurons out, which had not been studied out of the gut lining before, and I wanted to look at them that way as well. I wanted to look at the electrical activity of a single adult enteric neuron from the mouse. Well, to do that, first I had to get them in culture. Now you've got to imagine these neurons are in the gut lining and these cultures need to be completely sterile. Well, if you think about the gut lining, you know what's right next to the gut. There's a lot of fecal matter. There's a lot of poop right next to these neurons. So I, it took me just, it took me over a year just to figure out how to take out those guts and how to wash the fecal matter out and then get those neurons out of the gut lining and wash them enough that they would be in a sterile culture so that I could do electrophysiological studies. So that was quite a bit of time there. And I, I'm very, very proud of that. So, you know, I was, my little claim to fame is for my postdoc was being able to isolate from an adult mouse um, enteric neurons from the gut and electrophysiologically categorize them. They had been done previously. There had been some studies electrophysiologically with gut neurons, but they had all been from fetal mice. So these are, you open up a pregnant mom, you take out the fetal guts, and you um, take out those neurons. And the reason why they had done that is because fetal guts are relatively sterile. That sounded, it sounded a little beyond me. I didn't want to cut open pregnant moms and take out their guts. <laughs> That's just, I, I wasn't feeling right about that. And um, there's no guarantee that a fetal cell is going to behave like an adult cell. I really wanted to see what these adult cells were doing. Um, I felt like that's where the answers would be. So, so I did figure out how to do that. And then once I actually had cells that I knew were neurons and I was patch clamping them, I could see something amazing that only neurons have, and it's the action potential. The action potential is this really cool spike in electrical activity that is the defining feature of neurons. So if you have an action potential, you're a neuron. If you don't have an action potential, you are not a neuron. So I was giving morphine to these neurons, and I wanted to see what morphine did to these to these adult neurons. And what I saw is that morphine had a really profound effect on how these neurons fired. Okay, so they weren't able to fire action potentials as well. So normally if you take a nice, healthy enteric neuron and you give it a little stimulus, it'll fire this beautiful train of action potentials, one after the other, like bam, bam, bam. But when I gave them morphine, they weren't firing so hot. They would fire like one little action potential and then they'd be quiet, you know. So when I looked at the data, what I saw is that morphine was, you know, instead of them firing a bunch of action potentials, they were just firing one action potential. And instead of firing these really huge action potentials, the action potentials were slightly smaller. So they weren't going as well. Also, it took quite a bit more stimulus to even get them to fire. They were really reluctant to fire in the first place. So we started taking a closer look at the different currents that can flow through the cells. So we can have sodium flowing through them, we can have potassium flowing through them. And I found that the effects was largely on the sodium channels. So sodium channels open up to cause the action potential 
they caused the upstroke of the action potential. And what morphine was doing is it was causing these channels to become inactivated. So um, sodium channels cause the upstroke of the action potential. And right after sodium channels open, they make the neuron fire. Now, once the neuron fires, it has to immediately return to its original resting state. Um, being really excited like that is actually very neurotoxic for the neurons. They don't like being depolarized, like they're firing an action potential for more than a millisecond because it kills them. So these channels immediately become inactivated so that they can't fire again right away and they can't kill the cell. Well, what morphine was doing was it was causing a lot of these channels just to become inactivated, you know, as they were. So that meant that these neurons couldn't fire. And that makes a lot of sense. If the neurons of your gut can't fire, it's not surprising that now they can't do peristalsis and all the other things that the enteric neurons, the enteric nervous system controls. So they normally, the enteric nervous system normally causes the guts to contract, it causes it to secrete fluids and all the other things that move the food down the gastrointestinal tract. And if these neurons aren't working, then that can't work either. So after your postdoctoral work, you said you focused on teaching. Tell me about the class that you teach with my colleague, Tom Bannard, about drug biology. So this class is called Drug Biology. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I proposed it as a sort of temporary course. And what it is, is I'm bringing pharmacology 101 to the undergraduates. And I feel like this is a super, super important topic because drugs are the major tool of anyone who's going to work in science. So whether or not you're going to be a veterinarian or an MD or a nurse or a dentist, or you're going to go to graduate school and you're going to be a scientist, drugs are your major, major toolbox. The other thing you've got outside of that are scalpels and, you know, other than that, your sawbones, which is not very helpful. Um, So I feel like students really, really need to learn about drugs and they need to learn about them early, Um, especially because this is something that they're going to see in their first year of coursework or their second year of coursework really intensely at the next level. So it's good to have them prepared now. Um, Another reason to teach people about drugs is everyone in this society uses them. They are so ubiquitous. So you look on any corner and you see a drugstore. How do we know which drugs to buy? How do we know what treats what? How do we know that we're getting our money's worth? How do we know if one's the same as the other and whether or not it's safe for you to take it? You know, whether you have a heart condition or, you know, a predisposition to asthma, you know, all that kind of stuff. So it's really important that everyone knows how drugs work and they know how to buy them and they know, you know, what's OTC versus prescription. What does it mean to be generic versus a formula? Are they the same thing? Um, So I started this course and basically what they're going to learn in drug biology is they're going to learn a lot of the major drug classes. So we do start off with the basics of pharmacology, but then we immediately start hitting the classes. So we do the autonomic nervous system drugs, we do cardiovascular drugs, cancer chemotherapeutics, you know, gastrointestinal drugs, um, all the major classes. And the second half of the course really focuses on drugs of abuse. So here at MCV campus of VCU, we have one of the most worldwide famous 
pharmacology departments for studying drugs of abuse. Um, we're world leaders in this particular area of research, and I really feel like our students should know about that those particular drugs. I mean, they're privileged enough to go to a university where we're actually doing this research. And also, drugs of abuse have a major impact on a lot of people's lives. Um, whether they have a family member who's abusing drugs, they're abusing drugs, or if they're just partying with their friends on a college campus, they're using drugs of abuse. They should really be intimately familiar with those drugs. So we start off with a couple weeks of, you know, what does it mean for something to be addictive and what that neurocircuitry of addiction is, and then we do each of the classes. So, you know, I do marijuana, I do the opioids, we have other guest lecturers come in and do things like nicotine and the inhalants and the anesthetics and um, a lot of the other major drugs of abuse. So part of that, um, I feel that to really install empathy in our students because they are going to be our future healthcare workers, we need to bring in real people with their stories. So Tom Baynard brings in members of Ramson Recovery. So these are both students and faculty members who are in active recovery, and they tell their stories to the students. And I think the students are actually kind of surprised by a lot of what they hear in the stories. Because when people think about drug addicts, if they haven't met them in their personal life, they tend to think about what they see on in the movies or on TV. You know, this is someone who's, you know, lived on the streets. They've always, you know, had sort of a bad traumatic background. They do drugs. And then while they're doing drugs, they're doing really awful things. You know, they're stealing their mom's VCR and, you know, breaking into cars and, you know, punching people to rob them. And then they hit rock bottom and they go through treatment and or they or they die. And what you're learning here by seeing these real addicts is, for one, their stories are all completely different, and they come from all over the place. Some of these people have come from really nice homes. Um, and a lot of them were achieving things in life, even though they were addicted to drugs. So they, they might have been in school, they might have been getting all A's, but they might have also been mainlining heroin. Um, so it lets them know that there's not just one stereotype that they should look for when they look for an addict. Um, another thing that they hear that I find is really important is how they were treated as addicts. So people talk about, you know, yeah, I was addicted and, you know, I'm, I got in an accident or something happened and, you know, I came into the medical community and I was really treated like a lowlife. You know, I, I wasn't given drugs. I wasn't being taken seriously. I was sort of shoved aside and you're an addict and you're not worth saving and, or they just didn't know how to handle me, you know, that sort of thing they hear a lot. And I think that's important for future healthcare workers too, that know they need to pay attention to their addicts and they need to figure out how to handle them. They shouldn't, you know, just not know what to do or brush them aside. These are their patients. Um, and also importantly that all the people that they hear from are in active recovery and doing really amazing things. So, you know, they're hearing from faculty members. They're hearing from people like Tom. These are people who do have a past with addiction, but the world is so much better with them in it. You know, Tom is now helping to direct, you know, Kobe and doing really amazing things and helping people get sober. These other faculty members are doing research or running programs and various type things, even if they were addicted to substances for 10 or 20 years. 
So it shows that there's really hope for everyone and everybody's worth saving. And you don't know who you're going to be saving next. I mean, they may not be doing anything now. They may just, you know, be so sick and sad and lost. But if you help them and you heal them, they can become really amazing people that the world is so much better off with. And like I said, this is true even if they've been addicted for decades. So there's still hope, and I like for the students to see them. I really want them to have empathy for the experiences of addicts so that they think about how to you know, change their treatment and how to get them to a place where they can be cured and, and have a healthy whole life. As a researcher, as a person who has studied cannabinoids, uh, both those naturally occurring in the body and then those like THC from other drugs of abuse. What is your opinion on the legalization of marijuana? So that's a really fun question. Everybody wants to talk about marijuana. It's one of my favorite classes to teach because it just, it's got so much going on right now. You know, we're legalizing it in certain states. We're making it available for medical use in other states and all the rest of the states are talking about it. Um, so when we decide whether or not something should be legal, one of the first things we should consider is how harmful is the drug. All right. So alcohol and nicotine are something that you can use legally and methamphetamine is not because methamphetamine is way more damaging to the body than um, than maybe nicotine or, or alcohol. Well, one of the things about the cannabinoids is, as most people know, the cannabinoids are relatively safe drugs. It is nearly impossible to have an overdose from cannabinoid use. You really can't smoke it fast enough. You almost can't eat it fast enough. You would really have to go out of your way to make some sort of super concentrated, you know, substance that you could inject. Like, I don't know what you would have to do, but I have combed the literature for real life examples of people dying from the overdoses of the cannabinoids, and I really can't find it. You can find it, it where they've mixed it with other drugs, or maybe they've mixed it with some sort of solvent so that it would dissolve better, and that may have sort of contributed to it, but but as far as killing yourself outright with marijuana, it's, it's really quite hard. Um, so another question is, well, is marijuana addictive? And a lot of people out there would like you to believe that it's not. Well, it is. It is. All drugs of abuse are addictive. So it does cause the release of dopamine in certain parts of the brain, and it does cause a lot of addictive behaviors in people. So, you know, people will get anxious if they don't have marijuana around, if they're used to smoking it. Um, they will hang out only with other people that smoke pot, or, you know, maybe they're not going to climb the career ladder quite as quickly if they're using marijuana a lot. So it's clearly an addictive substance, all right? So it's not this totally safe substance. But other questions that we should take into consideration when we talk about legalization is what has prohibition gotten us? Well, from earlier in the century, we should remember alcohol prohibition. That went horribly, all right? Alcohol prohibition caused a huge spike in violence. Um, you know, people were bootlegging alcohol instead of, you know, buying it over the counter, so there was a huge increase of organized crime with tons of murder and violence, but also the drug itself got a lot more dangerous, okay? So people were making their own 
sort of alcohol and instead of making ethanol they were making methanol as well people were being blinded they didn't know what they were getting so it was just a catastrophe as far as violence goes and as far as what the users were taking and then the overdose and deaths that came from that so when I think of marijuana I think a lot along the same lines you know what is prohibition doing for us Well, one thing we know it's not doing is we know it's not stopping people from smoking pot. Like, that's a given. So NIDA has done a lot of gathering data, and they have found that the vast majority of people in the United States try marijuana at some point in their life. And way, 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 way over 50% of high schoolers have tried it by the time they leave high school. I, I forget what the exact numbers are, but we're talking like 70, 80%. So people are using marijuana. And prohibition has not stopped that. So what else has prohibition gotten us? Well, it's certainly not making our society any safer. So people hear about drug cartels and the violence that is involved with that. I mean, so they're creating a black market that is not regulated in any way. So that is increasing danger. So, you know, people who are selling drugs don't have a whole lot of ethics. They're going to sell to someone who's under 21, and they're going to sell drugs that are laced, you know, potentially with other things. And, you know, they have, they can be very violent and things like that. So prohibition is not making us any safer. So some of the benefits that we could get by legalizing the drugs are, of course, money. And that would be one of the first arguments that I would make. Uh, Colorado has been an amazing experiment in legalization. And what we have seen is that through legalizing marijuana, they have created so much money in tax revenue, they don't even know what to do with it. Um, their schools are being funded off the charts, and they had so much money, they almost had to give some back to the taxpayers because they had gone over the legal limit of what they were allowed to collect from their taxpayers. So, you know, they've, they're doing very well money-wise. And when you look at what's going on in Colorado as far as violence and, you know, um, ER visits and things like that, we're not seeing any negative effects there. We're not seeing huge increases in car crashes. We're not seeing increases in violence. We are not seeing increased visits to the ER in the adult population. Now, the one exception, which is kind of funny, is we are seeing increases in ER visits for the cannabinoids for children. That's because part of you know, making marijuana is people will make um, like brownies and gummy bears and lollipops that contain THC and they're leaving this stuff around where kids can get it. That's bad. But overall, Colorado has not been the hot mess that people who are into prohibition predicted that it would be. We're seeing that instead it's been very safe. They've, you know, generated a lot of revenue and it's actually going quite well. So now People who are interested in using marijuana can go to a dispensary. They know exactly what they're getting. They're supporting a legit business that's paying their taxes. So that's fantastic. So another thing about legalization is it would open up the ability for researchers to effectively research this compound. Right now, marijuana is considered Schedule One, which means that you're really not supposed to use it for therapeutic means or even really research with it that much. Now, we do do some research with it, but very, very little. It's very, very tightly contained. You have to jump through tons of bureaucratic hoops and red tape in order to be able to work with this drug. 
And that's really unfortunate because, for one, we know this drug is these drugs are not too terribly dangerous. We've been using them for thousands of years, but they're also been shown to have a fair amount of therapeutic potential. So the most obvious one that people talk about is they're really good at stimulating appetite and they're really good at controlling nausea and vomiting. So any patients that you want to eat more, such as people who have cancer or people who are dealing with um, HIV-related wasting, these, these drugs are fantastic, and they are given in some states. You can use it for that. Uh, we also are finding that it might be really good with cancer. The TH, well, THC and some related cannabinoids, there might be some mechanisms that slow cancer growth and actually help decrease it. And that's such a promising line of research. Cancer is a really huge, huge killer in our society. Um, one out of two men and one out of three women will be diagnosed with cancer in their lifetime. So we need any tool that we can get a hold of to fight this epidemic. And by keeping marijuana, Schedule One drug, we are really depriving ourselves of those compounds. So by making it legal, not only are we making it legal for users of the drug, but we're making it legal for scientists. And I find that way more exciting. You know, what what wonderful drugs would we come up with if everyone in the nation were allowed to do marijuana research? So what are your goals for the future? What kind of research topics are you most interested in exploring now that you have looked so deeply into the processes of cannabinoid and opioid use? So... That's what I did as a postdoc. And so now I'm here learning how to teach and talk to audiences so that hopefully I can start to fulfill Tom's dream a little bit of scientists being better communicators and learning learning to talk with the community. Also, teaching is a really huge part of being an academic and not not everybody's awesome at that, you know, so I felt it was good to take a few years to go learn to teach before going back into research. Um, but I've got a lot of dreams about what I want to do in the future. So when I actually, you know, after I've been an instructor for a while, I really would like to get back into research. And I've actually, you know, I actually do spend time talking to researchers and looking for funding opportunities and seeing how that's going to happen. Um, but I'm really interested in the microbiome, and that's where I would like to go next. So the microbiome is a really hot topic. And the microbiome is all of the bacteria that live in your gut. And they, they've been showing all kinds of profound effects of the microbiome. So the microbiome has been shown to have major effects on like anxiety and depression. And a lot of people are pointing their fingers at the microbiome with diseases like autism and irritable bowel syndrome and Crohn's and things like that. And so I'm really interested in how the microbiome is being affected by opioid addiction. Because we know that if someone's addicted to opioids, their guts are stopped cold. Okay, so that's a very different environment from a healthy gut. So in a healthy gut, you know, food is flowing through, we've got certain bacteria that live there, and they're making you nice and happy. But now you take that gut and you put it into a really severe pathological state and you stop the flow, that's gonna cause different organisms to grow and live there. Uh, We've done a little bit of preliminary work 
uh, between the biology department and the pharmacology department. We're doing a collaboration with one of my colleagues, Dr. Maria Rivera, and my old mentor from pharmacology, Dr. Hamid Akbarali. These are two wonderfully talented, awesome scientists. Uh, Dr. Akbarali works with electrophysiology and opioids in the gut, and he was my mentor during my postdoc period. And Dr. Rivera is awesome with the microbiome. She can take a fecal sample and she can do some very, very advanced genetic analysis to be able to tell you what kind of bacteria are in there. So what we've been doing is, you know, joining forces between these two departments and um, some preliminary studies where we took some mice and we made them very, very constipated using morphine and then harvested their guts, we looked at the microbiome composition between the healthy mice and the addicted mice and we're already seeing very profound changes. So it'd be really interesting because, you know, not only to know that that's happening in addiction, but if you want someone to recover from addiction, you don't just need their brains to recover, you need their guts to recover. And so everybody's always looking for a magic pill to help with addiction. And usually those magic pills are sort of aimed at the brain. You know, how do we reduce the anxiety? You know, how do we get that, um, the opioid system back up and running again? But, you know, people don't often think about the gut. Well, there might actually be a magic pill for the gut. So uh, something that's getting more popular um, sort of in science lately is something called fecal transplant therapy and it's just what it sounds okay you take you take poop from a healthy donor and you put the poop in someone who isn't feeling so well and they they're actually doing it with humans right now and uh, there's one of the gut bugs that is really you know terrible in hospitals and causes massive diarrhea so what they're doing is they're taking fecal matter from healthy patients and putting them in uh, these infected patients, and they're doing so much better. And there's a lot of anecdotal work out there that people are curing themselves of Crohn's and all this kind of stuff by doing this at home. <laughs> so, you know, there's a lot of people on the internet that have talked about how their lives have changed through fecal transplant therapy. And I can't help but think, well, if we have addicted mice or addicted humans, what if we fix their microbiome as we sort of try to detox them from drugs, you know, so maybe they're, they have their first few days of sobriety and, you know, yes, they're, they feel awful in their head. They've got a lot of anxiety. They're feeling pain all throughout their body. They feel very unsettled and unhappy because they don't have endorphins, but they've also got all of the vomiting and they've got a lot of the diarrhea. And maybe some of that anxiety is caused by their microbiome being out of whack. Because, you know, we think that the microbiome being out of whack can cause depression and things like that. So if we fix the microbiome, you know, while we fix the head, maybe these patients would feel so much better that they'd be able to stay sober, that we could actually get them back to a healthy state and they wouldn't have to do so much work. And this might be a real missing piece of the puzzle. So that's where I would like to go in my future years. Well, thank you again for coming in. It was a pleasure chatting with you, and uh, best of luck with your research and teaching moving forward. Absolutely. It's my pleasure. Thank you so much for giving science a voice and letting researchers and talk about drugs of abuse and stuff, because I love it. I could do it all day. Thanks again to Dr. Trisha Smith for joining us.
Our final segment, Mindful Music, encourages listeners to take a break, be present, and appreciate performances by VCU students and graduates. Today's Mindful Music is How to Set Your Bed on Fire by Claire Morgan. Describing the song in an interview, Morgan said, Bed on Fire is about a walk I went on with my sons around our neighborhood. It's an attempt to slow down and enjoy single moments with them instead of being distracted or mentally occupied with anything else. A reminder for myself to be present. I end up being so thankful for moments when I successfully slow down and get into some sort of macro mode with my day. On a drive or sitting and focusing, really listening to what my sons have to say. We're in this moment in the world where it's so incredibly easy to be distracted and to live in the whirlwind. I have to remind myself to jump out of it every once in a while, and when I do, it feels so right. I think to myself, why am I not always living this way? So I wrote this song and others to remind myself of what I want my life to be like. I want to always be present. Thank you so much for listening.